God, we thank you for the privilege of being able to study your word. God, I pray that you would give us a desire, even in this moment, to hunger for it, to crave it, to thirst for it, or that you would create, even within us right now, a, a lean in posture towards this particular passage. God, we pray that you would speak because we are listening. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about an info commercial? An info commercial. You know those commercials, long kind of commercials. There's usually uh, someone that's speaking very loudly and they're trying to convince you to buy a product that you know deep down you don't need. You know, th those kind of commercials that like none of us really enjoy, we kind of stumble upon them by accident, you know, you're flipping through the, this, you know, different uh, channels, and then you just kind of come across this person that's trying to, to sell you something, right? And, and it's done so uh, persuasively, right? It, it's done so in a way that, that almost convinces you that your life is incomplete without this product, right? Like, like you're never going to clean up messes adequately unless you buy the ShamWow, right? Or you're never going to be comfortable or warm again unless you purchase the Snuggie. You know, you're never going to get into physical shape unless you purchase that shake wake and actually use it on a regular basis, right? There's some sort of, of pitch that's made that's done so confidently, persuasively, and it offers this guaranteed solution uh, for your life, See, when I think about an info commercial, the first thing that comes to my mind is that they tend to overpromise and underdeliver, which is very interesting because businesses try to avoid that, uh, what they call the, the performance gap, the, the gap between what a, what a business is capable of uh, compared to what they actually uh, deliver. Now, being overpromised and underdelivered when it comes to a product or service is one thing can leave you feeling frustrated, even bamboozled on some level. But when it comes to matters related to eternity, that is something that is completely different. As Peter closes his final rebuke here uh, uh, against false teachers and their heresies, he's moving from describing just these characteristics of them to now actually explaining their impact on the church. What Peter wants us to see in this passage are two things. He wants us to understand the false teacher's strategy, and then secondly, their future destiny. Peter is essentially describing them as glorified info commercials, that the product that they're selling is not the true gospel. It is the false gospel, and we need to be alert. So let's first, let's look at the, the, the strategy of these false teachers in verses 17 through 19. I would describe and summarize their strategy as over-promising and yet under-delivering. That Peter, even in verse 18, like a, a glorified info commercial, Peter describes these false teachers as having loud boasts, and yet the substance or their product is folly or it's empty, it's hollow. Now to communicate this, Peter uses two really helpful images in verse 17. And these images are a high-level summary in which he will unpack fully in specificity in verses 18 and 19. So look with me at verse 17 at these two images. He says, they, the false teachers, are like waterless springs. And then secondly, they're like mists driven by a storm. Okay, so these two metaphors are a a vivid picture that capture the hollow and insubstantial nature 
of the false teachings message. So first, look at the waterless springs. This is Peter's using this because the, the dry climate in the east uh, basically viewed these springs of water as a promise of, of life, a promise of, of refreshment. But imagine for a moment, if you're a weary traveler and you get to this spring and yet it's waterless, it's empty. Imagine the extreme disappointment and frustration and even despair. That's exactly what Peter is describing related to the false teacher's message. Their message is one where they're promising life-giving and refreshing and satisfying truth. And yet when you actually get to the message, it's empty. It's, it's hollow. It's an empty well. This is similar to the Old Testament, these uh, spiritual imposters, specifically in Jeremiah chapter 2, where it says, They have forsaken me, the Lord, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, cisterns that cannot hold water. Now look secondly at the other metaphor in verse 17, the mist driven by a storm. Now, at first glance, it almost seems like Peter's introducing a second point, almost communicating that false teachers are unstable, being blown around by the wind. However, this is really the same point, just using a second image. That mist at times seems to promise more rain, but rather than producing life-giving rain, it can dissipate. That mist can even uh, be a predictor of dry weather to come. This is Peter's point here, that the, the message of the false teachers, it's like a passing haze with the illusion that a life-giving substance is coming, but it never does. Okay, so it's two images communicating the same point that the false teacher's message is characterized by a hollow and deceptive and disillusioning message. Now, Peter doesn't stop there. Look with me at verse 18. That first word there, the word for, tells us that he wants to further explain their strategy. These metaphors are helpful, but he wants to dial in more specifically around their tactic and how they overpromise and underdeliver. Let me point out three things about their strategy. First, notice in verse 18, the manner in which they deliver their message, the manner. Peter describes them, again, as speaking loud boasts of folly. Folly here means empty or hollow or vain. So what Peter is saying here is that these false teachers, they speak enormous things, but when you get closer to the message, they're empty. Their delivery, it can be confident, it can be persuasive, it can be assertive, it can even be very believable because the way they're communicating, they're so sure at what they're saying is true. But when you dial into the message, it dissipates, it's empty, it's hollow. It's impressive on the outside, but on the inside, it's empty. There's sound, but no substance. So that's the manner. But secondly, notice the method. In verse 18, Peter says that they entice by sensual passions of the flesh. Now, Peter's describing how people kind of fall into their, uh, their, their message here. And he uses this word entice. Now, Peter who's a former fish, fisherman, uses this in kind of a fishing metaphor that these false teachers, they lure their catch with bait. And their method here is to employ deception aimed at persuading others. But notice the target. 
The target are those who barely escaped from living in air. Peter's describing that people who usually take the bait are these new converts or these unstable, weak believers. Let your eye wander back up to verse 14. Peter essentially says the same thing, that these false teachers entice unsteady souls. Okay, so what is the bait though? What's the bait that false teachers use? Well, the bait that's wiggling on the hook is a sexual bait. Peter describes it this way, as sensual passions of the flesh, or in some translations, it has licentious desires of the flesh. Peter is referring to to sexual immorality at the very heart of this type of, of bait. And this would have been very attractive for a new convert or someone who is unstable in the faith, what they're hearing these false teachers say is, hey, you you can experience anything you want in the sexual arena and still get heaven in the end. You can have Jesus, but you can still indulge in the desires of the flesh in the sexual arena. So if you're a new convert, if you're unstable in the faith, you're listening to that and you're saying, sign me up. Sounds like a good deal to me. And so their their bait here, their lure was very effective as they entice these new converts in the faith. Now, I I personally enjoy fishing. I'm not a great fisherman. I don't really fish all that often. I'm no expert by any means, but I Googled this week, uh, which is always an interesting uh, experience, Googling how to become a good fisherman. And I came across all these crazy articles about how to fish because I'm just trying to understand this concept of enticing and fishing. And there was this one article uh, written by an expert, right, allegedly, and, and he had 10 tips to be a successful fisherman. And I thought this was so interesting that three of the first four tips are exactly what Peter is, is describing when it comes to the false teachers. This article identified that to be a good fisherman, you need to learn how to cast well, that secondly, you need to learn your lures, so master the art of deception. And then thirdly, they talked about how confidence is key for whatever reason. Maybe the fish are picking up on that. I thought that was very strange. (laughs) But I thought to myself, that's exactly what Peter is saying about these false teachers. They've mastered the art of deception They've learned how to, how to cast their lines, how to, how to communicate effectively, and they're very, very confident, loud boasts of folly. And so try to, try to picture, that article was helpful, just kind of picturing what might be taking place in this church. You have these, these false teachers who are confidently and loudly kind of casting their message into the water that's filled with these new converts, these unstable believers, but the bait that's wiggling on the hook, that's such an effective lure, is the offer of sexual gratification without consequences. They're saying you can enjoy sexual sin and not be held accountable. There's no judgment before God. And again, they hooked so many people because they were dressing up vice as virtue with their persuasive rationalization. Right, so again, Peter's trying to help us understand their strategy. We've seen the, the manner, we've seen the method, but thirdly here in verse 19, we see the actual material of their message, the substance. Peter says in verse 19, look at it with me, they promise what? They promise them freedom. 
but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. So notice what they're offering. The the material is freedom. Again, they're saying, indulge in whatever you want to indulge in, and you still get heaven in the end. Now, to the world around us, that sounds like freedom. To an unbeliever, being told, yeah, do whatever you want, and you get heaven in the end, that's the message of our culture of freedom. And yet we know that's not true freedom. That is a false freedom. That participating in any kind of sexual sin always leads to a type of enslavement. The one who is given over to sin is a slave. And so sexual sin, what the principle here is you're thinking about false teaching, these messages, sexual sin always comes with it, a type of bondage that without the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is impossible to be freed from. And just by way of application this morning, I wonder if some of us are in a season of life right now where that describes you. Where right now you have been listening to these false messages from the world around us, that you've seen the the bait on the hook there of sexual temptation and, and, and you've taken that bait and you're hooked and you're being reeled in right now in this season of your life. And the evidence is that you are participating in sexual sin. Look, can we talk just for a moment about pornography? That statistically speaking, there are some of us, and in fact, a lot of us who are here right now in this room and yet participated in pornography at some point throughout the week. And I'm not standing up here and and I'm just going to just guilt trip you. You you know it's wrong. You know it's sinful. Pornography might be the greatest example of an overpromise and underdeliver. And that that's an understatement. Pornography is utter destruction, utter wickedness that it will ruin relationships, it will shrink your soul and your, your hunger for God and the things of God, it will entrap you and ensnare you to the point where it will eventually choke out the seed of the gospel. And look, for those who are participating, that you know that. And so what I want to say are just two things related to that. Number one, you need to hear that there is grace. There's grace. There is forgiveness that is available to you in and through Jesus. And you need to hear that today because one of the things the enemy wants to convince you of is you're trapped and there's, there's no hope for you. There's no forgiveness in this particular area of your life. Like I want to remind you of 1 John 1, 9 that says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us of all of our sins, all of our sins, and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And yet, we need to balance that out with 2 Corinthians 7, or verse 10, Paul warns us and says, don't fall into the trap of worldly sorrow, 
Make sure you have a godly sorrow because that leads to repentance. So don't fall into the trap of of falling into that sin and, and feeling bad about it for a moment and then falling back in. No, godly sorrow has a contrite spirit that leads toward change. And so just understand this, that God's desire for your life is to experience freedom in that area and that there is forgiveness that's found in the grace of God, but it involves repentance and change. So hear that today. But and then secondly, just strongly encourage you to, to get help to talk to somebody, talk to a pastor, an elder, talk to an accountability person, someone that you're close to, and bring that sin out of the darkness and into the light. That has so much power when it's just kind of hiding in the darkness. So I would encourage you to bring that out into the light where there is healing and there can be transformation. But this is what was happening in this church. The, the, the type of, of sexual sin that's on this hook that these false teachers were presenting to these believers and they were taking it. So understand part of their strategy, and we can apply this in so many different areas, but they overpromise and they under-deliver and we need to be on guard against that. Secondly, the other thing I want us to see as we wrap up this chapter is that the false teacher's destiny is one of eternal condemnation. Peter reminds us by repeating this, and the second half of verse 17 reminds us that these false teachers are destined for utter darkness. This is a reference to the realm of eternal punishment where their final end is one of doom and condemnation. All right, but, but look at verses 20 through 22 for a moment. Peter, uh, in discussing the, the condition of these false teachers in a way that, that warns us and warns these unstable believers. He says in verse 20 that these false teachers had indeed escaped the defilements of this world through some type of knowledge of Jesus. It's really interesting that these false teachers had some sort of relationship with Jesus that led to a degree of moral progress. And yet this type of knowledge about Jesus was not a saving knowledge, for Peter then says that they were again entangled in the sinful defilements of this world to such a degree that they were overcome by them, which is evidence of someone not being truly saved or regenerated or converted, that they had a type of knowledge about Jesus that was ineffective. And that should remind us of chapter one, verse eight where Peter says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, which for the false teachers, they weren't, but if they were, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in what? In the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so for the false teachers, because they weren't increasing in these virtues of chapter one, they had a type of knowledge about Jesus that was ineffective and unfruitful. And as a result, they could not experience verse 10 of confirming their salvation or verse 11 of being welcomed into the eternal kingdom of Jesus. So I would actually describe their knowledge of Jesus as just having a type of head knowledge of Jesus. And this describes many people in the world, unfortunately, many people even in the church, where they know a lot about Jesus, but they don't actually know him 
to the degree that it's impacting their behavior and their spiritual growth in godliness. So these verses here, I don't think are referring to losing your salvation because that's theologically not even possible. That salvation is not something that we earn, therefore we can't lose. It belongs to Jesus. But I think these verses are describing that the false teacher's behavior is evidence of them not having saving, genuine faith to begin with, that they had a type of faith in vain or a James 2 type of, of faith like the demons believe in Jesus, and yet they shudder, but they don't have the fruit or repentance. But then Peter doesn't stop there, though. He, he continues, and it seems to suggest that he's, what he's suggesting is that these false teachers, because they were exposed to Jesus and kind of dabbled in the grace of God, only to become entrapped again in sin, Peter says it actually would have been better for them not to hear about Jesus to begin with, that now it's, it's even worse off for them. This reminds us of what Jesus said in Matthew 12, verses 43 through 45. He reiterates that point. You can look at that passage later on today. But the point here is that the more we know of God and yet reject his truth, the greater the punishment it will be. The greater knowledge we have of God brings a greater sense of responsibility and accountability. That to much is given, much is required. Now notice verse 22, Peter's closing comments about these false teachers as he's kind of landing the plane on this topic. He reminds them of these two well-known sayings or two well-known proverbs. The first one is that a dog returns to his own vomit. This is from Proverbs chapter 26, verse 11. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Now, if you own a dog, you probably have witnessed this disgusting practice. I, why do dogs do this? Like, it's utter disgusting, but they do this, and it's, it's actually a really helpful picture for us in understanding what the false teachers have done ethically. Like, in their behavior, in their lifestyle, they have now returned to the practice of sinfulness, just like a dog returning to his own vomit. And then the second a well-known saying, this is not in the Proverbs, but it must have been well-known throughout this church, is that the sow or the pig, even though uh, it, it was washed, returns to wallowing in mud. Again, it's the same point, that these uh, false teachers, even though they experience some type of moral progress, are now wallowing in the dirtiness of their sin once again. And as a result, the destiny and the end is eternal punishment. Now, we have covered a lot of ground in 2 Peter chapter 2, and on a topic that is most likely under-taught. And so what I want to do today is I actually want to provide just some helpful application for us as we think about false teachers and their heresies in light of everything that we've seen in chapter 2. I mean, we've seen a lot. We've seen where false teachers come from. We've seen specific characteristics of them, their strategies, their tactics, uh, main gateways that they use to walk into the church. We've seen their impact on other people, their future destiny. But here, I want to provide some applications so that we know kind of how to apply this and what to do with this chapter. Here's the first application I would encourage us to understand is that you are not invincible toward false teaching. That yes, on one level, we need to avoid cultivating 
a, a culture of suspicion, but at the same time, we do need to be on guard against false teaching. And, and so I would encourage us to, to, to not believe the lie that just because you've been a Christian for X amount of years, or just because you've been at church for X amount of decades, that that automatically makes you invincible to false teaching. And, and that can be kind of a, 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 a ensnarement of pride where you can think, yeah, I've got all this knowledge of the Bible. I've been walking with the Lord for years. Therefore, I'm not gonna fall into these traps. We remind you of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall, right? There, there's a reason why we have countless commands throughout the New Testament to be on guard and alert against false teaching. Matthew 7, 2 Corinthians 11, Acts 20, Galatians 1, 1 Timothy 6, the whole book of Jude, 2 John, 2 Peter 2. And so if this was a problem for the early church in the first century who were literally pastored by apostles, not even 30 or 40 years after the resurrection of Jesus, then how much more for us today? And so I'm encouraging us this morning to, to find this balance where we avoid one extreme that, that looks for false teaching under every bush, but then also to avoid this other extreme of spiritually sleepwalking. Right, find the balance. And I think the balance is by being watchful, being alert, being on guard about the things that you hear, the things that you read, the influences that you allow into your life, to be on guard by, by knowing the strategies of false teachers, maybe those, those gates that false teaching can, can creep into the lives of believers and the church, and to avoid being puffed up with pride. So that's the first application I just encourage us with. Here's the second, though, is to know sound doctrine more than knowing heresies. The application of chapter two is not for you to master every heresy that's out there. There's too many of them. That, that, that actually wouldn't even be helpful. Remember what we talked about last week? That's to identify counterfeit money. What do, they, what do federal agents do? They master the real thing. And that's the call for us when it comes to doctrine, that we need to master sound doctrine. We need to study God's word so that when we come across counterfeit teaching, false teaching, we're able to recognize it. Look, there's a reason why Peter spent a whole chapter, chapter one, on exhorting us to make every effort to be diligent in growing spiritually. And, and, and he says to do so through the knowledge of God. Chapter one, verse three, we've been given everything we need for life and godliness through his divine power. And one of those means is the word of God. And so this has to be your priority in order to guard yourself against false teaching. And so prioritize it. Yes, this is primary, but also secondarily, just to supplement, fill your life and your mind with good books about sound doctrine that are theologically rich, right? Absolutely, depend upon the word of God, but also challenge yourself to read books concerning sound doctrine. Look, I, I'm challenging us to be a type of, of Christian that's, that's described in Acts chapter 17, verse 11, to be a Berean Christian. 
Acts 17, 11 says this, that they receive the word with all eagerness. And you do that amazingly week in and week out. But it also says that they examine the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And so look, I, I love that you trust me. You should trust me as your pastor, but I'm challenging you today to take every word that I say and hold it up against the scriptures. To ask the question, is what he is saying true? Is he being faithful to the text? Is he explaining accurately what the word actually says? Be a Berean Christian. No matter how much you trust me, no matter how much you give me the benefit of the doubt, you will make our church stronger. All right, no sound doctrine more than knowing heresies. And then thirdly here, challenge you to, to recognize false teachers by using the, the Bible's parameters for that and not your own preferences. And I don't know what it is, I could maybe guess, but the last couple years in particular, I have seen this label false teaching being thrown out there way too loosely. And that could be another sermon in and of itself. But, and I mentioned this last week, but I think that we need to avoid just kind of labeling something as false teaching just because you disagree with it. Like the reality is you could actually be wrong. Like you could actually be confronted with sound doctrine, with truth, and not like how that feels because it might be convicting. It might be calling you to living contrary to how you're, you're currently living. And because we don't like that feeling, we have a tendency to say, I don't know if that's true. That might be just false teaching. And it kind of makes you feel better, but you're mislabeling something. And so the application here is to use the Bible's parameters for what constitutes as false teaching, not your own preferences. And to this end, let me give you five questions to ask as you're kind of, you know, being exposed to different things and trying to learn and grow. Here are five questions to ask to identify if something is false teaching or not. Here's the first one. Where does the message come from? Where does the message come from? As you're listening to teachers, whether it's me or, uh, or podcasts or different friends that you have, you need to discern what is the source of authority. For a true faithful teacher, they will always bring you back to the word of God. They will always say, what does the Bible say? This is the authority. This is the power. False teachers, on the other hand, their source of authority tends to be their own personal experiences, uh, their, their own uh, stories that can pull on the emotion, emotional strings. They will use worldly ideologies. Uh, they'll use their own creativity, the, the, the power of their rhetoric. They'll, they'll use emotions or clever nuances. And that's where the authority rests. And so I try to identify where does this message come from? What is the source? And then secondly, what is the substance of the message? Right? For a true faithful teacher, you will walk away from the message more rooted in the word of God. And it will be focused on, on more gospel-centered teaching than a me-centered teaching. False teachers, what they will do is they will take their agenda and read it into the text to make it say whatever they want it to say. 
And so understanding the, the, the actual substance of the message, you're trying to identify, is what this person is saying actually true and faithful to the text? Actually get to the material and the substance of that message. And then thirdly, the third question is, why should you listen to the message? Try to get to the appeal. And for a true faithful teacher, their appeal is that God has spoken. We need to listen to the word of God and what he has said. So they're asking the question, what has God said in his word? False teachers, they're asking, what do people want to hear? What will, what will kind of grow a, a, a crowd? What will appeal to their flesh? What, what will kind of scratch their itching ears? And they will tend to avoid difficult topics. And then fourthly, look at the character of, of that particular teacher. False teachers, we've seen this in chapter 2, all kinds of characteristics describing their immorality. But then you look at a true faithful teacher, they will fit the characteristics in chapter 1. So observe their conduct. And then fifth, last one is, what results does this message produce? That again, false teachers, they will overpromise and yet they will under-deliver. A true teachers, their, their message is grounded in the word of God. They rely on the word to do the work and relying upon the spirit of God. A false teacher's message may, may leave you feeling better about yourself. You might actually feel uplifted. You might feel happier. But that tends to be because false teachers avoid calling out sin. They avoid some of the hard topics like God's holiness and repentance and uh, eternal punishment and the judgment of, of God. And so try to identify, where does this message lead? Is it leading to growth? Is it leading to sanctification? So maybe just to kind of summarize this, uh, there's a, a helpful chart uh, by Tim Challies who basically uh, kind of walks you through different steps in, in identifying something that is true teaching versus something that is false. And so if you're looking at true doctrine, true content, he argues that it originates with God the Creator. And then secondly, its authority is coming from the Bible, but it's also consistent with the message of the Bible. And then fourthly, because sound doctrine is, is sound quality, it's healthy. It, it will benefit you and it is profitable. So he argues, if you're hearing teaching that checks all those boxes, then accept it. Hold fast to that teaching and being doers of it. And then, of course, when you get to the false teaching, it's really just the opposite. So the responsibility for each of us is to learn God's truth by searching God's word and using his standard to evaluate the teaching and, and, and the resources, the articles, the podcast, everything that you are, uh, you, you're absorbing as an individual through the word of God. And then fourthly, I'll, I'll close with this. This is the last application, is to avoid false teachers. There's no good that comes from false teachers and their teachings. And being biblically alert means being able to spot the wolf before they pounce. So you need to apply chapter two to be able to identify a false teacher. And yet the reality is, unfortunately, not all churches are safe. Not all preachers are honest. Not all sermons are true. And we are called to avoid those false teachers. And it's interesting, it sounds unloving, but the New Testament has a, a biblical model 
of naming false teachers, rebuking them, and avoiding them. In fact, there's a long list. There are too many examples. To, I'll just give you a few. You have Paul who's publicly naming individuals like Hymenaeus in 1 Timothy 1.20, Alexander, 1 Timothy 1.20, Philetus, 2 Timothy 2.17, Demas in Colossians 4.14. Apostle John does the same thing in 3 John 9, mentions diatrephus. There's a model for recognizing, identifying, and avoiding those false teachers. And I almost came this morning with a long list of false teachers that you should avoid and their false teachings, but I just had too long of a list to count. We'd be here for the next several hours. And so instead, I want to give you seven popular categories of false teachers that you could actually put any of these false teachers in one of these seven. I think this might be more helpful as we think about avoiding these kinds of false teachers. Here's the first one is the heretic, right? This is the type of teacher that is blatantly contradicting essentials of the Christian faith and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Avoid them. Secondly, is the immoral uh, false teacher, that, that his behavior is entrenched in immorality, takes advantage of others. Avoid that person. Thirdly, the, the charlatan. This person is only interested in the Christian faith, in ministry, for their own personal monetary gain, for their own personal enrichment. You think about the, the prosperity gospel can be thrown into this kind of camp along with category number one. Fourth, the prophet. This is the person who stands up and says, God has spoken to me audibly, or I have a new revelation apart from the scriptures. Be careful about those individuals. Avoid those false teachers. And then the divider. This person happily disrupts the unity of the church loves to stir the pot, neglects protecting the peace and purity of the church. Six, you got the, the tickler. This person says only what people want to say, things that are pleasant to the ears. They're man-pleasers and not God-honoring. They avoid the hard truths. And then seventh, you have the, the speculator. This person just delights in foolish controversies, speculations, and displaces really the sure and steady doctrine of the scriptures. So identify them and avoid them. And understand this, as I close, Satan seduces the bride of Christ through these false teachers. Be alert. Like I want us as a church and, and even as elders, as we think about our role of shepherding, of leading and feeding and protecting the flock, like this is a big responsibility, not just for the elders, but for each and every one of us to be on guard and to be alert uh, as, it, as it relates to false teachers. Let me just encourage you with this. One of the best ways to be on guard is to understand the massive differences between false teachers and our good and perfect teacher, Jesus Christ. To understand all the differences between these kinds of false teachers who are self-serving compared to Jesus Christ, who is the good shepherd and the protector of his bride. That unlike these false teachers, Jesus is not self-serving. He's not a wolf in sheep's clothing. And most importantly, Jesus never overpromises and underdelivers. Think about John chapter 10, verse 18. Jesus declares, I willingly lay down my life for the sheep. 
that Jesus is the type of shepherd, he's the type of, of teacher that willingly sacrificed himself for the good of the flock. And then just a couple of verses before that, John 10, 10, Jesus made a promise that is unbelievable. He promised that he has come to give life and life to the fullest. That's a big promise. And yet Jesus has delivered upon that promise through his death and through his resurrection to all who believe in Jesus, he grants to them eternal life, forgiveness of sins, and hope forevermore. That Jesus is the perfect teacher, our savior and our deliverer. He is the one who will never disappoint. Keep your eyes fixed on him. Let's pray together. God, we do praise you and thank you Lord, for your word, how helpful and profitable it is. God, we thank you for even the difficult uh, portions of Scripture like 2 uh, uh, Peter 2. And yet, Lord, help us to apply this. Help us to be on guard against false teaching that wants to disrupt the unity of the church, wants to bring confusion as it, as it relates to sound doctrine. God, we want to be believers that are growing. We want to be further sanctified. We want to be a church Lord, that, that displays the beauty of Jesus to a surrounding world. So God, help us to be vigilant in this. Give us discernment. Give us wisdom as we follow after you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.